It's time to speak with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, how are we doing? I'm doing great. Always good to be here. The justice system is a machine, and it's important for all members of the public to understand the specific workings of that machine so that, agree or disagree, we can better understand how it arrives at the certain outcomes at which it does arrive. Take, for example, our first story today. I'm reading consecutive parole eligibility for multiple murders. This one made headlines. It, blew, it got blown clear across the Internet. I saw a lot of misunderstandings. Help us understand what it was about. Yeah, so the background of this, of course, starts with what is the penalty for murder, right? That's the first thing to understand. Um, and in Canada, yeah, if somebody is convicted of murder of any kind, uh, the punishment for that is always life in prison. That's the first thing which there's often just this misunderstanding about. Uh, the punishment for murder in Canada is life. Uh, and that came as part of the compromise to get rid of the death penalty back in 1967. Right. Hmm. Uh, prior to that, we had the death penalty. Canada hung hundreds of people over the years. Wow. Uh, in Victoria, we would hang people at the old courthouse down in Bastion Square. Yeah. Um, and so the uh, part of the compromise to get rid of the death penalty was to impose mandatory life in prison uh, for anyone convicted of murder. Um, interestingly, in Canada, the last statute that got amended to get rid of the death penalty didn't occur until 1999. Um, when the uh, National Defense Act was amended, uh, up until that point, at least on the books, there was a, uh, if a person is traitorously engaged in cowardice, desertion, uh, or unlawful surrender or spying for the enemy, if you were convicted of those things as a traitor, the penalty was mandatory death. Wow. <laughs> so mandatory death. <laughs> mandatory death. Don't spy for the enemy. Not going to go well. All right. So... That's when we finally got rid of the last uh, statutory provision in Canada uh, to hang people. Um, and so what sometimes get talked about, uh, people talk about sometimes mistakenly, this period of parole ineligibility, uh, which is completely distinct from the fact that you're sentenced to life in prison. Parole ineligibility is simply the period of time when you can't even ask for parole, Right. Being eligible for a parole simply means, you know, you may go kindly with your cup out and ask. It does not mean you will get it. Uh, and the principal consideration on parole is safety of the public. And so if you're dangerous, you're just not getting it. Yeah. Uh, but we've, got, we've introduced this concept of you can't even ask for a period of time. And sometimes that wrongly gets conflated with that's how long the sentence is, which is just not so. Uh, and so in Canada... If you're convicted of second-degree murder, the parole ineligibility period, you cannot ask, is set between 10 and 25 years. Mm -hmm. And for first-degree murder, it is 25 years. Uh, but what happened a few years ago um, is that, uh, I, I guess, uh, scratching your head about, well, what could be tougher than life in prison and maybe the idea of consecutive life sentences, which some U.S. states have ridiculously opposed, didn't sound tough enough, or maybe it sounded ridiculous. Uh, the, uh, they came up with this idea of, in first-degree murder cases where more than one person was killed, uh, permitting a judge to impose consecutive parole ineligibility. So mm -hmm. if two people are killed, you can't even ask for 50 years, or three people 75 years, or we'll go up to 100, or whatever it might be. Um, and, very, and so... The case that was just decided and was reported on reasonably widely 
was a case involving a uh, an awful uh, circumstance in Canada where a man in Quebec shot and killed six people at a mosque in Quebec a number of years ago. People probably remember that yeah. back in 2017. Yeah. Um, you know, we should bear that in mind. Uh, you know, I guess when we look at uh, the tragedies going on in the United States recently, uh, Canada is not without uh, those uh, uh, rare, happily uh, tragic events. Mm. And so this man pled guilty to uh, six counts of first-degree murder, as well as various other counts for people that were injured. Um, and the uh, Crown sought to apply this uh, reasonably new provision asking for consecutive parole ineligibility, because we can't give him any more than life. He's only got one to live. Yeah. Um, and he argued at the time, at trial, or the sentencing judge, uh, that the sentence would be cruel and unusual. Right, having this uh, would amounted for him 150 years of parole ineligibility. You can't ask for 150 years. Uh, the trial judge found that that would be contrary to Section 12. That's to say, cruel and unusual. Yes. And the trial judge decided to try to read down or interpret the section to allow him to impose a 40-year parole ineligibility period. Huh. Um, and so that's what the trial judge did. And so then the case went to the Court of Appeal in Quebec. Uh, the man appealed the 40-year ineligibility. And the Court of Appeal said, yes, this was unconstitutional, these uh, multiple uh, consecutive ineligibility periods. But the trial judge uh, shouldn't have kind of read that thing down and imposed 40 years. And so that's what then went up to the Supreme Court of Canada. And the Supreme Court of Canada agreed with the Quebec Court of Appeal in the sense that they found that it was not appropriate for the judge to try to read this uh, section in a way that would allow 40 years rather than, you know, 150 years to yeah. try to make it constitutionally permissible. And the point there that the Supreme Court of Canada made is that that concept of trying to read down or interpret a section in a way that could survive a constitutional challenge might be appropriate where there's some ambiguity or where Parliament might have intended that, you know, they're presuming they want to do something lawful, right, for example, uh, but not appropriate uh, where clearly the intent was to do what, you know, they wanted 150 years. That seems to be what Parliament intended. So they said, well, it can't be read down in that way or reinterpreted. And so then the Supreme Court of Canada had to deal with what the section actually provided for, which would be effectively, in this case, 150 years of not asking for parole. Uh, and so they had to answer the question, is that kind of a sentence uh, cruel and unusual, contrary to the provisions of Section 12 of the Charter? Uh, and the Supreme Court of Canada's unanimous answer to that question was, yes, that is unconstitutional. Uh, and the way they approach it is they, looked, they look, first of all, when there's a Section 12 analysis, whether it's cruel and unusual, is the sentence grossly disproportionate, right? Uh, and then there's a second prong to the analysis, which would be, is a class of punishment cruel and unusual, which the you know, state or government just can never be permitted to use? Um, and on that basis, the Supreme Court of Canada found that this provision, which would allow for parole ineligibility extending all beyond the possible lifespan of any human being, mm -hmm. uh, effectively telling somebody you have no hope of rehabilitation, no prospect of that, and you will die in prison, right? So they found it to be sort of analogous to 
what you do psychologically to somebody when you put them on death row and say, you know, well, we're going to hang you in 10 years, but, you know, hang out here and think about it when yeah. we get around to you. Uh, and so they looked at things like, well, what have other sophisticated uh, countries done? And they looked at a number where that had been analyzed, you know, places like uh, Germany and France and Italy and various other places, all of whom had found sentences of life in prison with no hope of parole to be unconstitutional, cruel and unusual. They looked at international law and other, uh, as another place uh, for sort of where that had been considered. Uh, and they were looking at it from the point of view, not so much about the individual in this case, who is, the, I think they described it as, <clears throat> you know, the concern is not about the particular vile individual, right, who engaged in that uh, kind of conduct. Uh, but they were looking at sort of a higher level of, you know, when is a type of punishment is sort of just inappropriate and the state shouldn't be allowed to do that to people, right? Um, and so the, they sort of had a discussion about, in, in addition to looking at what other countries had done, sort of some of the core values that we have as a society, including the concept of the possibility, at least, of rehabilitation. And they said that like, even where that may be in an individual case of minimal importance, right? You know, some person who's engaged in, you know, they describe vile criminals, maybe a really uh, low chance that that's ever going to happen. But it not be appropriate that the state be allowed to tell somebody, you are going to prison, you will never get out, you are only getting out when you die. Don't bother uh, with any efforts to, uh, you know, reform yourself or anything else because you will stay here until you're dead. Yeah. And they found that not to be permissible. And so the decision is not about, you know, what do we think of this individual? Clearly, the act was vile. He pled guilty. There's no doubt he did it. And he's sentenced to life in prison. Yes. And, and there is a category of people who have realistically, they are just not going to get parole. Right. You look at somebody like uh, Picton, for example. Mm -hmm. Right. You're a serial killer. You are never getting out. And so. Uh, you know, another way to look at this, and it sort of ties in with the death penalty analysis in some places, it's not so much about, you know, what do we think about this person who's engaged in this terrible thing? Uh, it's much more about things like, you know, what are our core values and what is permissible and how do we, you know, what is the state permitted to do to people uh, and what is uh, so extreme uh, that uh, it is uh, amounting to this concept of cruel and unusual punishment? And so... The Supreme Court of Canada has joined another number of other countries who have come to the same conclusion that even though for a particular person their realistic chance of ever getting out may be close to zero, uh, we are uh, it's not appropriate or permissible uh, to impose sentences where we are telling somebody your chance is zero and you will be buried here. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the analysis that was done. It was a unanimous decision from the Supreme Court of Canada, and so that provision that would allow for a consecutive parole ineligibility has been found to be unconstitutional. It can't just be read down. Uh, and so bear in mind, of course, the sentence is life. This yeah. person is likely never going anywhere. Uh, but it's more of a comment on, you know, what are our core values? And one of the core Canadian values there is just that prospect uh, of uh, human dignity and the idea that there is some chance uh, that somebody is going to be able to repent and reform themselves and to close that door entirely 
uh, is not permissible. And so uh, that's what we got from the Supreme Court of Canada. I'm curious. You said it was Section 12 of the Charter that is the the prohibition on cruel and unusual treatment. Because I saw some talk about using Section 33, the notwithstanding clause. Some folks think that applies to the whole Charter. It doesn't. It's Section 2 or Section 7 to 15, but that would include 12, wouldn't it? Well, I, I would hope that that would not be even in the cards of consideration, yeah. right? Uh, you know, it would be like, uh, you know, you've had this uh, detailed analysis of what's being done around the world, clear explanation for why this would be uh, just uh, inhumane, lacking in dignity, contrary to core Canadian values, uh, that the idea that somehow uh, we're going to bypass all of that because we're really angry or something, yeah. <laughs> or it's politically expedient just to my mind, doesn't pass muster. And the critical thing that people need to understand is, again, the sentence is life in prison, right? For this particular individual or other people engaged in, uh, you know, serial killers and extremely dangerous people, they're not going anywhere, right? So it's not a a matter of, well, we need to really protect ourselves or the just mistaken impression that somehow this person is going to get out after 25 years, all this means is he may come cup in hand and ask the parole, ask for parole. Good luck, um, right? Uh, yeah. You could ask for whatever you want to. All that means is the period of time for which you can't ask. That's really the way to look at it. And the key principle there on parole is always the safety of the public. And if you've got somebody who's engaged in you know, killing more than one person, good luck to you. <laughs> There's yeah. a very, very high probability that's just never happening. All the Supreme Court of Canada here is saying is that uh, it is contrary and incompatible with the sort of basic principles of human dignity to tell somebody, you may never ask, no matter what you do or no matter what the circumstances, don't bother asking, we're burying you over there, right? Yeah, no, I I see it, I see it. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Michael. It's not saying this guy's okay or this is okay, right, Uh, and we need not be concerned about safety. It's just a comment on uh, sort of the uh, core principles of uh, human dignity and we don't want to say to somebody, it's hopeless, forget it, don't ever come cup in hand. Um, and that creates other problems, of course, practical problems, right? If you're the uh, prison guard or prison administrator, do you really want somebody for whom there is nothing more we can do to this person? That may yeah. not be a, a very uh, a good circumstance. So uh, I think the decision makes sense. It does require some bearing down on, if somebody looks at the sort of headline of it, you think, oh my God, this is a terrible individual. Why would you do anything for this person? That's not what it's about. It's not about countenancing what this person is doing or reducing what is likely to happen to this person. It's a comment on our core values and how we approach these things. Uh, And that's really how the decision needs to be analyzed. All right, let's take our break. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers will continue analyzing the latest in current affairs in the legal world right after this. And we're all listening to Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers as he helps us better understand the latest news and developments in the legal world. What's next on the agenda for us today, Michael? Uh, Next on the agenda is a settlement of a a very substantial uh, series of class action claims uh, that were all across Canada and where there were parallel claims in the United States uh, dealing with uh, interchange fees uh, charged to merchants for accepting credit cards. And the way those work, if people aren't familiar with them, is when you go and use a credit card at a uh, merchant, uh, the, uh, there is an amount of money which is deducted from what's actually paid to the merchant. It could be one and a half or two percent, whatever it might be, depending on the agreement the merchant has with the um, uh, company doing the uh, processing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
So there was a, a series of class action claims that were started all across the country that have been percolating along now for more than a decade, uh, alleging breaches of the Competition Act, civil conspiracy to injure, unjust, unjust enrichment, and various other things, suing a whole host of parties, including um, the all the major banks uh, in Canada, uh, because uh, the way it works is you've got these networks, like the Visa network and MasterCard network, uh, but then you've got uh, banks who will both issue credit cards and will do the um, uh, transactions for the merchant who's accepting the credit card. And so there's been a settlement uh, of these class actions, and it was clearly uh, a very complicated case that went on for a, a really long period of time. But there's now been uh, a settlement, and there's been approval of the settlement, and there's been uh, approval of the means of distributing the funds. And it's a substantial amount of money. Uh, the settlement is uh, in the range of $131 million in Canada. Um, and it's important that people know about this because there is a deadline to apply for it, and you must apply for it. Um, the deadline to apply is September 30th of this year. Okay, hmm. um, and the it, persons uh, or uh, businesses that would be eligible would be any business which has accepted uh, payments by uh, credit card between March 23rd of 2021 and September 2nd of 2021. So a 20-year period of time. Um, and the way the settlement works is for businesses that are small businesses that have accept, that have an average uh, revenue of less than a, a million dollars. Um, they can uh, apply without providing any documentation other than an attestation that they uh, accepted credit cards for that period of time. And you can indicate which year somebody did, and they will be paid out uh, $30 per year. So for a small business that's been around and operating for that period of time accepting credit cards, it amounts to $600. But you have to fill out the application form to get it. Um for businesses that are medium-sized, up to $5 million a year in average revenue, uh, then you have to provide a little bit of documentation to show that you had a merchant agreement during that period of time, and, and they would be paid out $250 per year. So that's $5,000 of a business, like a restaurant or something, operated for that period of time. And then large businesses, uh, if they had more than that in revenue, uh, over $20 million a year, they would be required to provide uh, detailed documentation about how much they paid in these uh, interchange fees, and then the amount they would receive would be calculated based on that. But the idea is to simplify the process for small businesses, so you, you don't expect somebody to try to find your credit card statement from March of 20, 2001. Good luck with that. Um, so the critical information is that uh, people need to know that if you're potentially eligible for this, if you have a small business, um, you should go to the website to fill out your application before September 30th so that you can participate in this. Yeah. The website uh, is www.creditcardsettlementsplural.ca, www.creditcardsettlements.ca. Uh, and you can go there, you can fill out the form, it takes only a few minutes, and the uh, if you uh, had a uh, business and you accepted credit cards during that period of time, um, you'll likely wind up with a check in the mail. Uh, but don't miss the deadline. 
Uh, and I think this is worth talking about and people knowing about because, of course, so many things these days uh, people are suspicious about. There's so many uh, fraudulent things or things that seem too good to be true or, right, you know, they're, they're part of this agreement uh, posting ads on Facebook and in magazines and newspapers and uh, having trade associations and so on trying to notify people. But uh, naturally people are suspicious about are things real? That sounds too good to be true. Uh, but I can tell you this is uh, legitimate. There's been a large settlement, and if you are somebody who uh, accepted credit cards during that period of time, make sure you go and fill that out, uh, and uh, you'll be able to uh, participate in the settlement. All right, we've got just under two minutes remaining. Um, well, maybe just briefly, there's a uh, case from the Court of Appeal that's an example of how prolific offenders are in fact dealt with in B.C., uh-huh. uh, and a, uh, it demonstrates the tension between trying to reduce the number of Indigenous people in prison and uh, dealing with people in that category. Uh-huh. And it's a, a man who had, is a prolific offender who uh, pled guilty to being in possession of stro- a stolen van and contents uh, and driving while prohibited but he had a bad record of 117 prior convictions. Wow. 53 years of age. Wow. Uh, Métis man. Uh-huh. Uh, so he was sentenced to two years in prison, uh, and uh, he appealed that sentence, and his appeal to the B.C. Court of Appeal was just denied. Um, and so it, it is a uh, example of uh, the fact that uh, where you have somebody uh, with that kind of a record, even if what they've done is you know possessing a stolen van, uh, van tools and a water beater, right, uh-huh. and driving when he's not supposed to. Uh-huh. The system does respond with jail sentences of that kind. Good. The flip side of it, of course, uh, is that, you know, we see all of these statistics about uh, the overrepresentation of Indigenous people in prison. Yeah. And so uh, here, this man uh, will be in prison for a period of two years. Uh, we won't need to worry about any stolen vans, uh, but we'll have to see what, uh, what we get back uh, two years from now. Uh, he has uh, apparently congestive heart failure and a drug addiction. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But I thought people should know about that because it's an example of what actually happens and that, as I said, that tension between trying not to lock up uh, a, a excessive number of Indigenous people yeah. while at the same time responding to what do you do with somebody who at 53 just keeps uh, engaging in property crime, and uh, the response is uh, to your prison sentence. Michael, thank you as always for helping us better understand the intricacies of these issues. It's always appreciated. Thank you so much. Stay safe. All right. Have a great week. We'll talk to you next week.